Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. My name is Craig Cooksey. I am a principal consultant for NTT, uh, historically Dimension Data, but we've had a, a global merging of, of Dimension Data and about 30 of its sister companies. Um, so as a principal consultant uh, in our intelligent workplace or modern workplace or traditionally end user compute, however you want to define it from that perspective, uh, typically technology agnostic, um, working with our customers uh, from an outcomes driven uh, perspective. So what is it that they're trying to do and, and how do we get them there? So uh, understanding their objectives, understanding what they have in place today and developing strategic roadmaps to help them get there. Correct, and you and I share the South African heritage. Do um, I was actually just looking at your profile, and you've been you're in the UK for eight and a half years. Yeah, and I'm coming up on eight years, which I thought was quite ironic. <laughs> um, I don't know how long I've been working in IT for. It feels like forever, but that's uh, what it is. Yes, yes. Um, so I've been working in IT for going on. 22 years. It's it's sort of a, a family thing, really. My, my dad's a civil engineer, so we clearly have a, a technical um, mindset and approach to things. But um, I'm the youngest of, of three boys, and funny enough, uh, all three of us have, have ended up in IT, where my dad would have liked at least one of us to, to carry on the family business, but uh, <laughs> not work out that way. <laughs> well, I think, I think IT is the new engineering yeah, some engineers would probably disagree with that. I remember there was big consternation when I was studying back at uh, Aral, Renaissance University, that you couldn't be an engineer and do IT. Oh, really? Um, so we had to do one year of engineering to okay. get our um, feet wet. Ah. That's when when did now, you graduate from Aral? Oh, actually, um, uh, 2012. I, I okay. dropped out because okay. of work. Uh, well, I was enjoying the work more than the studying, to yes. be honest. Um, and I wasn't getting, passing getting as, as much as benefits. <laughs> well, and I wasn't passing. Um, oh, okay. and I was working these these ridiculous. Um, we were working on a project, um, which I was I was basically sleeping in my chair. Me and a couple of other guys we were working all nighters and all weekends and all that kind of stuff. And I, and the first time I was looking at a textbook for an exam was on the morning of the exam. Okay. Um, so it wasn't smart by any means. Um, yeah. But in, in saying that, I, I did pass something. So I don't know if you remember this in South Africa, there was a whole thing about you couldn't carry your credits past seven years. Yes. Uh, or five years. So I so I, because I was failing and I wasn't passing enough to keep up with the credits, I would have to redone like my first two years. Okay. Um, and at that point, I said, well, no, screw that. I'd rather go and work. Um, I'm doing some really cool stuff. We're getting, you know, Microsoft loves us. We're getting awards and that kind of thing. Um, so I dropped out and in dropping out, uh, about three or four years later, um, I found out that actually that they changed the law on that. So you could actually have all your prior learning, um, carried through. 
Okay. So I went back to back to UJ and I said, uh, so with all my credits, what can I get? And I said, well, if you finish maths, uh, and that's up to math three, you can have a mathematics degree uh, with oh. some IT and whatever. So I went back and I did two years of uh, part-time, full-time, because I was still working. Okay. Yes. Uh, and I was traveling like an animal. I was in the Middle East every couple of weeks. Okay. So I was doing my tuts on the plane and I was taking pictures of my tuts and emailing them back to my lecturer. And she was marking them for me. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it was, it was quite an experience. Yeah. Yeah. I did, um, I did my master's through Liverpool University um, uh, part-time, which was um, interesting. What, what was great is that um, you know, as part of our, our efforts to get to the US, one of the things I needed was a degree because I didn't study straight out of school. I went straight into and started as a as a <laughs> draw trekker, sorry, uh, pulling network cables, as we would say. <laughs> <laughs> so I really started uh, at the bottom and working my way up through um, through yeah you know, with that doing my A plus and and going into first line, second line, third line support and that sort of thing. And um, when we started looking at at coming to the the US, um, thought hey, I really need to do a degree. And so I started looking around and eventually got in touch with Liverpool of University uh, University of Liverpool. I'll get my English right at some point in time. Um, and they actually allowed me into the master's program based on resume, reference letters, and industrial certifications and that sort of thing. So that took about two and a half years um, but I can thankfully say I, I managed to skip out on on the bachelor's and, and move straight into a master's which is definitely helping now yeah I must admit I, I'm trying to follow your path a bit in that sense I'm still debating it but uh, I think going a little bit more education never hurts yeah, you know, I think I got to the point where I was tired of having to redo all my industry certs to keep them um, current I was like I need something that I can I can do that nobody can take away from me for a bit <laughs> <laughs> and so it was it was tough though you know like we were um, I was working full time we were heavily involved in, in our church and that's one of the things I do on the side is, is music love music and so we were leading uh, that for our church and then we had two young kids so it was getting up at five in the morning studying going to work coming home and getting the you know spending time with the kids getting them into bed and then studying some more for for two and a half years which was which was fun um not in a massive rush to do anything like that again anytime soon but uh definitely worth the experience so craig i'd love to know um so this podcast is all about the digital workspace i'd love to know what that term means to you so uh, for me, the digital workplace really is everything that encompasses uh, the employee's digital environment for them to do their jobs. So that everything from what is the device or platform that they're using, whether it's whether it's a laptop, a desktop, or a VDI, um, through to the productivity uh, capabilities that they need to do their job from uh, the collaboration aspects from whether it's Cisco or Microsoft through to the productivity applications that they need to actually do their job. So well, what does that environment look like for them? Uh, obviously taking into consideration where they work from and how they like to work. So that for me in, in, in my perspective really holistically is what, what the digital workplace uh, means to the user. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I guess Ryan, does that, does that resonate with your, how you see it? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, Craig and I have had, had this just chat a few times. In fact, we mm. did have a sort of stage 
I can't remember if it was, if it was a stage presence or whatever. We, when we spoke in front of a few people at um, the Gartner Digital Workspace uh, here in the UK, um, I don't know when that was. It was probably that was September was last year. September. Okay. Yes. So, so we've had this chat a few times, and I think the thing that, that interests me the most about what Craig has done uh, is two things, in fact. Uh, public sector work you did for one of the medical uh, fraternities. And then the second thing was uh, how you used personas or created your own personas around the user. I'll, I'll start with the, the, the healthcare provider. Um, you know, the way that we, we typically used to do those desktop transformations is just identify the device that a user is currently using, make sure we understand what applications they're using, um, which was always very difficult because you would, typically just take an inventory of that endpoint. And, and if you said to a user, do you use all these applications, even if they only use three of the, the 500 on the desktop or the laptop, they'd go, yes, all of them. I use all of them just in case there's something they forget. Um, and, and that really changed me with, with that healthcare provider because as part of that, I had to uh, write the business case, which was a fairly sizable business case, you know, end-to-end uh, licensing hardware, um, assessment, design, implementation was a, about a $56 million program over five years, uh, the whole life cost of that, that program. Um, and that's really where I got my first taste of, of Lakeside Sistrack, really. Uh, and, and a key aspect to us actually getting that business case approved was being able to leverage actual data to understand what the user experience was today and then uh, rebaseline once we'd moved them to the new environment and prove that they were getting the productivity gains that, that we said they could get, you know. So industry docu- industry uh, white papers at the time around moving to Windows 7 back then uh, was the productivity gains and they were saying around 20 minutes per user per day um, improved uh, uh, power consumption, that sort of thing, were all aspects that we looked at when when writing that, that benefits realization plan of, of being able to move users to a new environment. Um, really difficult to prove, uh, especially when it was so subjective. You know, if you, as a rudimentary example, if you say to a user, well, how long does it take you to log on? Um, they'll say, hey, man, 15 minutes. I, you know, I'll put in my credentials and then a little spinny circle comes up and I go and have my breakfast and coffee and I come back and it's still spinning and then I sit down. Um, when in reality, when we're able to actually do what it is, uh, you know, and, and in this particular example, there was a specific use case complaining about the log on times. Um, we were able to understand that actually on average across the environment was about five minutes still not great really not great but um, Mm. we could then say no that's what your baseline is right now and we can rebaseline once you're on the new platform and we're aiming for 90 seconds Um, so proving that (coughs) time difference was critical to us getting approval for that business case especially when you're being funded by the government and they they really scrutinize everything that you put in there. You know, if you, you say to a clinician, hey, we want to spend $56 million on, on giving you a new endpoint and upgrading your operating system, I guess, sorry, what? Um, but when you can say to a clinician, well, actually, we're going to be 
we're going to be able to prove that we can give you about 20 minutes of your time back in a day at, at least. Uh, you know, for them, it didn't necessarily mean they could see more client, uh, um, patients in a day. It meant that they could see patients on time. So it gives them a better patient experience and patient outcomes as their whole driver funded. They're not profit driven. Um, and then it also means that they can uh, leave on time. You know, so a lot of clinicians were having to stay late because they were getting delayed and a big uh, factor in, in their ability to see patients on time was, was the impact of the endpoint or the, their, their digital workplace or workspace uh, throughout the day. So, you know, being able to leverage that sort of analytics um, really was critical to us getting that approved and being able to roll out. And, and then we actually moved, went uh, straight to Windows 10, which was also very interesting. Uh, but, you know, we were part of, of a technical adoption program for Windows 10 and a clinical environment was very interesting. And being able to leverage that data was, was really useful. So from that, um, in moving to my role in the US, uh, really looking at that, one of the critical factors, being able to understand what users are actually using versus what's just installed on the endpoint um, is really critical to us understanding what users are actually using. And so what I've seen over the last couple of years really is, is clients, uh, our clients as a global solutions integrator, our clients are, are really are understanding that it's no longer a one size fits all, you know, consumerization as it started uh, gaining traction and everybody wanted an experience at work that was similar to what they could get at home, a, a more tech savvy workforce, all of those things impacting uh, a, a corporate organization being able to provide services to their users that they really wanted to use, that they were excited to use, you know. And so with that, it's really about understanding what they're doing and how they're doing it. So. From, from my perspective, our clients are just, they're coming to us and saying, help us understand our users because we need to be able to give them a good experience. We need to be able to give them an experience they're expecting um, because we want to attract and retain uh, new, new talent, you know? And so leveraging the data from Lakeside and being able to understand what users are doing. And, and, you know, even as a quick starting point, that capability within Lakeside of being able to identify personas as, as it's defined by Gartner and as, as Lakeside's adopted that definition is really gives you a leg up on, on those environments that don't have that technology. So I've, I've done a couple of these user, user segmentation or persona analysis engagements where one of them had Lakeside and one of them didn't. And it took us far longer to do the exercise for, for the organization, excuse me, that didn't have Lakeside. And so it's really critical in understanding, you know, the device that they're using, the software that they're using, um, which really informs those conversations when you're actually engaging the business to understand what it is they're doing. You, know, you don't really necessarily get the insight, the context of how they're using the applications from, from the data you get, but it really is a great starting point to understand the system. So, so I'm curious about a few things that you said there. I mean, just just give me an idea. I mean, what, what is the the smallest customer, I mean, in the nicest way, to the, to the largest, I guess, where you can apply personas? I mean, do you, does it matter if it's only a small company of 10 people, or, or do you think it's you need to have a minimum amount to see some real 
value? I, I think there's always value in, in knowing and understanding your users, regardless of the size of your organization. It's obviously a lot easier to manage um, from a smaller organization perspective. Um, but, you know, we've done, we've done organizations that are 250 uh, employees. Um, and they've got five business units through to we're about to undertake a, a large global banking organization that has 140,000 users. Um, you know, the, the problem with it, though, is just you can get caught in the weeds and it's very easy to get distracted by the amount of data that you're having to analyze. And, and just um, condensing that down to, as Gartner recommends, you, you don't want to have more than nine user segments or personas within any size organization. But having that, um, and it's an ongoing uh, um, activity, you know. So I'll give you an example of another large uh, insurance provider um, that we did this for. They have around 30,000 employees. And they've actually, um, they've actually built out a whole team and an actual, an actual business unit for doing this on an ongoing basis. So, you know, as, as the markets evolve, you know, the companies are evolving with them to keep up with them and, and offer new services and that sort of thing. And, and you, you traditionally would have a function like a business relationship manager. So a go between the business and IT, and it's really taking that and putting it on steroids and, and proactively understanding your user base and what they do, their functions and, and making sure that ultimately what you're trying to do is aligning the right technology services uh, and tools to those personas to give those users a good experience and make them more productive. Craig, I'd love to know um, from your experience working on all of these persona projects and really aligning technology to user needs. Um, I think a lot of organizations you know, it can see the value in that, but oftentimes it comes down to what's, you know, what's the budget justification, right? Yes. Like how do we fit this in the budget? I guess I'm curious what, what your experience has been with that. Um, have you, you know, had to justify the ROI every time? How does that work? Um, I'll start off by saying that any sort of consulting that you're trying to sell to any organization is a tough sell. Um, it's really, um, We've seen it as a challenge to to sell to any size organization. They they really do clients, and I think it's especially um, since two thousand and eight when when the big crash happened. Everybody is about value. What is the value that you're actually giving me? And unless you can articulate that value to the business, they're not going to be overly excited about it. Um, and then there's a couple other things that that are that that really impact this. Um, one is that um, for some organizations, they will do a, a level of, of consulting of this sort up front with the objective of winning the wider piece of work, which is the, hey, we now have your personas, we understand. Let us now develop that roadmap for you to get the technology and services in place to support those users. So they're really looking at the, the detailed design and implementation services, um, and then any of the other infrastructure sales or technology sales, and then looking to get to the managed services. So it really depends on how you 
build that into your commercial model and taking this to to your clients. Others, depending on who you talk to, they they automatically see the value. I've just had a, a conversation about three weeks ago with a, uh, also a global pharmaceutical. And before we even got to the point of we going, hey, you know what we're seeing? We're seeing a lot of people asking us for this stuff. They said they're kicking off a, a their own initiative for understanding the users and doing persona analysis. And so right off the bat, we were speaking the same language. They understood the value. Um, for people that don't understand this, it can be a challenge to articulate the value. Uh, and it's also... It's also a challenge to estimate the level of effort uh, and, and then be able to price it because it also, again, goes to the, the level of granularity that they want to get to. So I'll give you one example it is for a client of ours. They wanted to go at an extremely granular level because their business need was they had high staff turnover. And what they were finding is that people were joining the organization and it would take two weeks before they were actually up and running um, and, and that they had the right device and they had the right access, the right services and the right applications. And so we came in to do the, that persona analysis to ultimately help them develop the configuration management items within the IT so that when they onboarded a new employee, they need to you fall into this bucket of, of persona and we can, with a couple of attributes, we can add you to the right groups and get you this, the 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 access that you need to the services you're going to need and give you the right device on the get-go. Um, so that that one took a little bit longer just because of the, the amount of data that you're still having to um, uh, distill and process and, and analyze um, through to ultimately giving them almost template configuration items for, for implementing into the RTSN tool. Um, and then you have other, other customers that are going, hey, we just really want to know who can use a soft phone? We you know we're having to do, and this is coming up quite a bit actually. With, uh, from a collaboration perspective, we are wanting, we're having to replace all these these hard client VoIP phones. We want to know who can move to a soft phone and who can't, um, but we don't really understand uh, in detail what each of our users are doing within their business unit. <laughs> I, had a, I had a couple of questions um, going going back to. So you you do this pre-assessment if you like where you might go in and you deploy some tooling and, and let's say using, you know, SysTrack or, or one of the other sort of tools. Yeah. Um, and from that, you can, you can give the customer some sort of insight initially to say you've got three personas or five personas, whatever it is. But do you ever go back, say, six months later or a year later after you've given them this plan and you've helped them to, do, to make these decisions to go and see if the, the return on investment's there? Um, so what I would say is that, um, and that's, you've reminded me where I was going a little bit earlier before I went down the rabbit trail. So that, that insurance, uh, company, they basically got us in to help them baseline upfront. And then they've building out, they've built out that business unit to then do it on an ongoing basis. So they understand that, that their market is, is shifting and evolving and they want to shift and evolve with that. Um, and, and what we actually have, um, as part of our service is a maturity model um, that we can do the assessment and, and give you a maturity rating on where you, your organization's at in terms of uh, understanding your personas and where you need to be. Um, and it goes from basic, intermediate, advanced to optimal. And really that's 
that basic and intermediate is is a starting point, but it is an ongoing activity. You really do want to be going back. I would say every probably nine to 12 months um, to make sure that that's still relevant to your organization. Because um, where you're really getting to is, is you're getting to a place where you're starting to proactively identify a new technology that, that can make your users' lives easier or, or be able to perform functions that they need to, to do or their job roles have evolved um, to needing them to do. So uh, it definitely is something that organizations want to do. We haven't yet been um, brought back in to do a refresh. Um, although what we do do for some of our consulting engagements is where we have a managed service, we actually build time into that where we do, once we have developed that strategy, we then proactively go back in there with them and go, hey, it's time for us to reassess where you're at right now and, and where the delta is so we can address those. I don't know if you'd seen the article, the Barclays Bonanza, where they had been. Okay, so so basically, uh, Barclays here in the UK um, did a pilot program here in Canary Wharf, where they installed a piece of technology called Sapiens, okay. uh, which was there to there to monitor what users were doing, uh, and to track when they were not active, and ask okay. them what they were doing. So oh, wow. if they were running around to go bathroom break or, or smoke break or, or whatever it is, um, they'd come back to their desk and they get asked a question, you know, where, where are you? What are you doing? That sort of thing. Um, the, uh, we, we looked at this previously as well as a product and we sort of stepped away from it, but yes. I was wondering with, with you looking at personas and, and I guess the American legislation is a bit different to European. Um, how are you considering those sort of scenarios, a sort of productivity tracking, versus um, privacy of data and what users are doing, et cetera? Or have you not come across that? So um, I actually did come across this more in the UK. So even for the healthcare provider, um, when we started seeing the sort of data that we were able to get out of Lakeside, um, there were HR concerns raised. You know, um, specifically, uh, <laughs> I, I had been asked by one of the managers to please let them know who's the least productive person in their team. And I said, I'm wow. really sorry that I'm not touching that with a, with a barge pole. So absolutely can see that being uh, a potential challenge. And, and to be honest with you, you know, um, with Microsoft and what Microsoft's able to do with Office 365 and their workspace analytics, their, their productivity analytics, there, there are questions that that um, people are raising internally going, wait a minute, so I'm getting these reports telling me what I am and what I'm not doing. Um, on the Microsoft side of things, what are you using that data for? You know, Microsoft does say, well, this isn't shared with anybody, so you can breathe easy. Um, so certainly have come across that. Uh, I wasn't aware of Barclays specifically doing that. Um, I don't think that there is legislation here that would allow for an organization to do that uh, with their employees. I think they would have other legal issues on their hands <laughs> versus trying to make sure people are being productive. What, you know, in reality, what, what we are seeing is that, um, uh, especially on our, on, from our side internally is that 
people are typically treated like they're adults, you know, and if you're delivering results and, and you're delivering on what you're needing to do, they're not overly concerned asking where you are and what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, and, and then there's other ways of figuring out whether people are being productive or not. This is well, I think what you're saying is key. The, the culture of your business should should dictate how people are measured. So if you are a results-driven organization, whether you work two hours a day or, or 10 hours a day, yeah, um, doesn't necessarily mean you're productive. Um, 100%. I could, I could sit clicking around in Outlook so that I've got, you know, an active engaged window all day, but not actually be doing anything, <laughs> doing any yeah. material work, you know, um, but the, yeah, you know, that is, that is at the end of the day, I think uh, we, we do, I have come across um, some really old school clients here in the U S um, one of them is a large manufacturer and they, they, they have all sorts of products that everybody in the world will have at least one or two of them in their home uh, I would venture to guess and they are old school they want you in the office at your desk all day so you know as a as a an SI that was really challenging um, in that because the US is so big and this is one of the, the major differences between working in the UK and working here because the US is so big um, Generally, remote working is far more acceptable and, and widely accepted than uh, the expectation that you're in the office being seen. Um, and even that doesn't necessarily equal productivity either. Um, but this particular client was very, very uh, focused on making sure that, especially if they brought in an SR partner, that those people were on site, on premise all the time. Uh, they were very much, um, uh, it was very much down to the optics versus actually how, how productive they were actually being. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see the argument for it if you are in a very collaborative environment and people have to talk to each other every day and, and you're making this, you know, you're, you're brainstorming, you're making decisions and, and there's a lot of flux. Yeah. But if you're a, a knowledge worker who's, I mean, spending your life on the phone, because you're on conference calls all the time and, yeah. and all that sort of thing, whether you're in the office or, or not, almost it becomes immaterial. Yeah. Or if you're writing code or something like that, then again, also, you know, be, be where you need to be to be the most most effective and efficient. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the way that we're typically working as an SI is that at our, our back office functions like HR and finance and what have you, they are typically working together. Um, they're, they're generally in the office together. Um, our sales force is typically out on the road, seeing clients, um, and, mm. and as I um, as I'm a pre-sales resource that's supporting nationally, you know, it's it's impossible for me to be at every client meeting uh, across the country. You know, I, I am mm. traveling for the next five weeks. You know, I'm in I'm in Atlanta this week. I'm in uh, San Diego next week. I'm in New York the week after that. Uh, you know, and those distances to be traveling and then trying to be in every meeting in person is just impossible. Mm, but then there's exactly. no point me going into the office because there's nobody there that I actually need to see. Yeah. I, I'm just wondering now, when you did your, your persona work or when you do your persona work, do you take into account what people's jobs are and what their skills are and try and do 100%. some sort of 
mapping? So, okay. yeah, 100%. So what we typically do is we we take the data that we get from the likes of, of, of SysTrack. You know, we've also used uh, SCCM data, System Center Configuration manager, uh, manager data. We take that in conjunction with HR data. So we absolutely engage HR, you know, and, and we ask them questions along the lines of, um, are your job descriptions, are your um, your titles and your roles, are those all up to date? When last did you baseline them? Are they still relevant? Does your HR um, system integrate with Active Directory and is that kept up to date? And a lot of the times we're aligning those roles and titles with the different business units and the functions that they're performing to then go into the interviews that we have. So we run workshops, we run focus groups, we do one-on-one interviews with the business to actually understand what it is that they're doing and how they're doing it. So I'll give you an example and that, uh, that insurance provider, um, we interviewed two different parts of the business. Um, and But on the face of it, their application load sets were exactly the same. But when we eventually got into it and we're talking to them, one was a clear set of task workers where they were using that application to do repetitive tasks day in and day out. But then when we went and spoke to the other side of that business, um, they were using the same applications, but they were actually using it to pull reports, look at the data, and from there develop new insurance products and that sort of thing um, to put back into the system for the task workers to then leverage. So that, that sort of differentiation, you can't understand just from the data itself you need to go and talk to the business to understand how they're doing it. And, and from there, we're also asking questions about how they're collaborating, who they're collaborating with. Are they generating their own content? Are they just sharing content? Are they sharing just with their own team? Or is it across the business? That, that, those sorts of questions. Yeah, I think what, you, what you're saying is very interesting is that the data needs context. Yes. And you can't just use one one message. One source will give you that context. So you've got Sistrack, yeah. for example, or any other DM yeah. tool. But you need to mix that with Active Directory or, or, or HR data yeah. or something like that to give you something a little bit richer. Craig, it's been great talking with you about your persona work. And um, yeah, where can people find you online if they uh, want to connect with you? Um, so if you look me up on LinkedIn, Craig Cooksey, uh, there, there's a couple of us, but uh, I, principal consultant at NTT, you'll find me. Great. Super. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.